from the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin. Welcome to The Set, a podcast that explores the motivations, experiences, and secrets to success from interesting people in and out of the field of surgery. With some humor mixed in, I'm your host, Sir Josh Mesrich, a transplant surgeon, part-time comedian, and somewhat successful fashion model in Madison, Wisconsin, home of the Badgers. The celebrity I most look like is Brad Pitt, although lately some people are saying I look more like Matthew McConaughey since I have been growing my hair out during COVID. All right, all right, all right, all right. Imagine finding out that your healthy, beautiful nine-year-old daughter has kidney failure. She's in need of a transplant or going on dialysis, which you know is painful and horrible. Of course, you would step forward to donate your kidney to her. But what if you found out that you weren't a compatible donor? You have different blood types. What would you do? Thanks to our next guest, you would still be able to save her and probably save someone else as well. In fact, maybe you'd even save more people while you were at it. Garrett Hill is the founder and CEO of the National Kidney Registry. The National Kidney Registry facilitates kidney pair donation. So what is kidney pair donation or KPD as we call it? Well, picture two scenarios. First, similar to above, let's say you want to give a kidney to your wife, but you're blood type A and she is blood type B. It's not going to work if you donate to her directly. Now imagine at the same time, I want to give my brother a kidney and he is A and I am B. How about I give my B kidney to your wife and you give your A kidney to my brother? That's what we would call a simple swap. Those swaps can be between two pairs, but you can imagine they can actually be more than that. Now picture a second scenario. This one's even cooler. Let's say I am blood type O and I want to donate a kidney into the pool as a humanitarian donor. I just think it would be a great thing to do. How about instead of me donating my kidney just to one person on the wait list, I give it to a blood type O patient who has an incompatible donor. And my kidney, of course, will be compatible with him. Then his donor, who was incompatible for him, can give to someone else who also has an incompatible donor. Then that person's donor can then give it to someone else, and so on and so on. That is called a chain. And if you can picture it, it actually can crisscross the country uh, over a period of time, months, until it eventually breaks. That entire chain that saves multiple people is all started by one heroic, selfless donor. How cool is that? Now, while these ideas have been around for a long time, more than 20 years, and it certainly wasn't Garrett who invented the concepts, it wasn't really until Garrett found out about his own daughter's illness that he truly made this a reality for so many of us. It is arguably the biggest innovation in the last two decades of the practice of kidney transplantation. I know that might sound hyperbolic, and it is true that the Mesriches in general have been accused of being hyperbolic. But honestly, in my own career, it's one of the biggest changes and the best things I've been involved with. But this is what's even more interesting. Garrett isn't a doctor. He's not a healthcare provider. He's not even a mediocre comedian like I am. To be honest, supposedly when he found out his daughter was sick. He didn't even know how many kidneys we each have inside us, or at least that's what he says. He's just a dad. Now, he's also a successful businessman and a former Marine. And honestly, he's a true pioneer. Let's see if we can figure out what makes him tick. I mean, it's obvious why he decided to help his daughter. But how did he decide to make this leap of faith to try and change the world of transplantation? Why did he think he could do it? How did he push through all the barriers telling him he couldn't? I mean, so many others had failed before him. And maybe what lessons does he have to the rest of us. 
Beyond that, I'm curious to know, does he think he can help solve our crisis of not having enough organs or at least get us better outcomes with transplantation? Let's find out. Okay, well, Garrett Hill, welcome to the set. Good to be here, Josh. I can't tell you how happy I am to have you here. And I do want to say that, honestly, your your contribution to my field has probably been uh, the biggest innovation since I've gotten involved with transplant. And I really do mean that. That's, that's good to hear. Yeah, so I want to dig a little bit into, into who you are and how this happened, because I think it's fascinating that one of the biggest advances in our field happened because of the work of someone that's not a doc or not even a caregiver. So if that's okay, let's dig into your background. Gary, can you tell me where you grew up, You know what, what schools you went to, and how you ended up in the military? Yeah, so I grew up in Maryland, and um, kind of early on, I enlisted in the Marine Corps when I was 17. I uh, went off to Paris Island, uh, went to communication school. Um, I was in the reserve, so wherever I lived, I had a reserve unit nearby. Why did I go that route? Well, my one brother was in the Navy. The other was in the Coast Guard. My dad had been in the Army, so the only one left was <laughs> the Marine Corps. Now, I did, I did look at the Air Force. That was an option, but uh, I ended up going to the Marine Corps. Did you think that would be your whole career, or was it just – temporary or what, what were your thoughts about that? No, I did it as a learning experience. Um, so it was really to gain that experience. I didn't really look at it as a, a career option. Was that time valuable? Do you think it still plays a role in the way you live your life or the way you look at innovation? Absolutely. Well, I'm not sure, so much sure about innovation, but uh, there's some core values that are uh, embedded in the Marine Corps that I, you know, I still have with me today. You know, the notion of never giving up, uh, discipline, the notion that you must win. Um, that's also pretty powerful, especially in the Marine Corps, because if you lose, you'll probably die. So it's very important um, for Marines to have that really, you know, that massive commitment to winning. Uh, so there's a lot of things that I took away from the Marine Corps. You know, it's hard to say how how much of an impact it had later on. But, you know, it's uh, well, almost 40 years later and I can still remember a lot of those lessons. I'm curious, when you joined the Marines, I mean, you were young. Did you look at it as taking a risk? Did you ever think that you could die doing it? Yeah. In fact, uh, when I joined, uh, it was in the middle of the Iranian hostage crisis. So. Uh, it was 1979. Jimmy Carter was president. <laughs> You're dating yourself. Uh, yeah, right. Yes, it was a while. So when we got to Paris Island, uh, we, we didn't have access to telephones, TVs, any radio, anything. Um, we were told that we were going to war with Iran, and we believed that. You know, the risk was there. Uh, thankfully, um, you know, that hostage crisis was resolved. I graduated, I think it was the first or second week of January, 1980. Uh, Reagan took office later that month, and the and the uh, hostages were released. So, um, you know, it was it was an interesting time. But yeah, there was there was certainly perceived risk there. Right. I'm I'm curious to ask about that because later on, I'll talk to you a little bit about your experience deciding to donate a kidney. And I'm curious if there's any overlap in how you think about that leap into the unknown. You know, signing up for the Marine Corps versus signing up to undergo a surgery. Do you see similarities in those two things or are they totally different? I, I would say there are, there are similarities in the risk assessment. Um, it, you know, candidly, uh, donating a kidney is a lot less risky than uh, joining the military and having the opportunity to go to combat. So donating a kidney is kind of, it, it, it's, not, it's not at the same kind of level of risk. Right. That's absolutely true. 
Um, it has this leap of the unknown, but it's much safer, I would think. <laughs> and then what happened after the Marine Corps? Did you uh, decide you wanted a career in business? Was that your next step? I always loved business. Um, and maybe it was uh, my father who was always looking at things as, you know, how you can improve them or how you can make a business out of it. I didn't think twice when I had to choose a major in college, it was going to be business. Uh, so, you know, I've always loved business. So I chose that as a major and, and uh, graduated from the University of Montana uh, in 1984 with a, a bachelor's degree in business. Mm-hmm. How did you end up in Montana? Was that just somewhere you wanted to be? Or? I, it's, again, a, kind of one of those weird stories. I went out there one summer when I was younger uh, to get a job on a farm. I, I saw myself bailing hay. Uh, and so I had a cousin out there. I went out and stayed with him. I never got the job bailing hay. I ended up selling shoes at a Tom McCann shoe store. <laughs> it's pretty, pretty far from the farm, but I really love I really love Montana. And so when I got out of the Marine Corps and I had to decide where I was going to go to college, um, I thought, well, Montana is a great place because I had achieved in-state resident status there. Uh, but I just I love the place. I had friends out there, so it was a uh, it was an easy decision to go to school there. I know it's an incredibly beautiful part of the country. I would love to live out there myself. <laughs> You're not far from Montana. I know. I think if there was a line from Hunt for Red October, I, I would like to have seen Montana. I always think about that. I know. <laughs> Random aside. So tell me a little bit about your, like, were you expecting to ultimately run your own business? Were you thinking you'd work for some big company? What, Like, how grand was your vision then? I always wanted to have my own company, uh, but... I didn't have the capital, so I figured I'd go to work for somebody else while I gained the experience. You know, the first job out of college was uh, working for Electronic Data Systems, which was purchased at the time by General Motors while I was there. And I ended up spending time in um, Mutual of Omaha, supporting that uh, Medicare claims processing system in Omaha. And then when GM bought EDS, I ended up going to Detroit for a I don't know, a month or two. And I, I um, at the same time I was doing that, I was applying to business school, uh, was accepted and then left EDS after only a year and went back to get my MBA. And then maybe briefly, what, what did your career look like? Like take me from there to point where you were starting to learn about kidney disease. <laughs> All right. So I'll, I'll go. There's a lot of stops, right? So after I graduated from business school, I uh, got a job. I went to L.A. I, I worked for a textile manufacturing company as a production consultant and also did so, some acquisitions work. And then from there, I went to work for a steel company up in Seattle, Washington, uh, where I opened a steel distribution center. We were selling boat shafting to uh, the fishing fleet in the northwest. Uh, that's The shaft is the piece that connects the engine to the propeller, right? Uh, it's a very niche kind of market. I then went back to Virginia to take the job as a CFO for that company, uh, did that for a while. And then I went to uh, Hartford, Connecticut uh, to take a job for a company in the mail processing business, uh, who then moved me to Boston to start a division up there, got that thing to profitability. And then I moved to New York to start a division there. Uh, and then I kind of grew that. I was there for probably, I'd say, 15 years uh, Growing that, it turned into four different locations around the comp- uh, country. Uh, and then I went to work for the securities business for a while. And at that point in time, I was opening a consulting business, a software development business, and did that uh, for a little bit. And then this the kidney thing came along. And 
initially, uh, you know, I couldn't devote a lot of time to it uh, because, uh, you know, I had to earn a living, right? But we were developing software for the financial services industry in, in my consulting software development business. And we realized that we could probably write the software uh, for matching in the uh, in the kidney space. And so that was the genesis. Uh, that was kind of the beginning. Uh, and that's, you know, that's obviously after my daughter lost her kidney function. And my wife and I looked at this problem and said, you know, it's a big problem. It's going to be hard to overcome. Um, but the impact is so huge. I mean, we felt it ourselves. And we're, you know, it was just us, right? We knew that there were thousands of people in the United States that had the same problem. And so it was one of those calculations where you say, not sure we can do it, uh, but the end result is so important. It's so big that it's worth taking a crack at it because if you can, you know, if you can move the needle on this thing, it's going to help a lot of people. So it was kind of a roll of the dice. It really was. I want to get into that more, but can we talk a little bit about what it was like finding out that your daughter was sick? Like, what, how did she present? What, what was that like for you? Did you know anything about kidney disease? I didn't know anything about kidney disease. Uh, and, and when she uh, got sick, uh, the doctor had us take her to the emergency room. He didn't even know. The doctor didn't know it was a kidney problem. He thought it was something else. And we got there, took the bloods and, uh, you know, the, the, the numbers, you know, I know these numbers now, like the uh, creatin was just super high. The, you know, all the, all the readings would indicate that the, the kidneys were not functioning. They hadn't functioned for a while. So we had to uh, get in an ambulance and get to a pediatric nephrology hospital as soon as possible. Uh, and once we got there, uh, they immediately put our daughter on dialysis. So uh, how old was she at this point? She was 10 years old. 10 years old. So were you thinking like you're, the sky is falling at this point? Was it horrible? You know, it's it, it was so overwhelming that, it, you know, you didn't know what was going on, but we held out hope, you know, that this was a, an acute thing that it would pass. And, and a lot of the medical professionals were telling us this is an acute thing and our kidneys are going to work again. So, you know, initially it was like, oh, this is, this is really tough, but you know, the, the clouds are going to clear and the sun's coming out. That was kind of the way we viewed it for a while until we got the results of the biopsy. And they said, you know, this is a chronic condition. It's never going to go away. Um, and that's when it really hit us that this is something that, you know, we're going to have to deal with for a while. So then at some point, I'm sure they brought up that potentially you, one of you could donate her a kidney. Yes. So we, you know, we immediately hit the internet, uh, researched all this stuff, and it didn't take long to figure out that a living donor kidney transplant was the best, best outcome. Best. That was the path, right? We didn't want to think about, you know, extended dialysis. We didn't want to think about waiting for a deceased donor kidney. You know, the living donor outcomes were way better. They were, you know, you could plan it, you know, the whole nine yards. And so that was kind of uh, immediate, immediately knowable, right? Uh, and then the next question was, uh, you know, could could myself or my wife donate? And so uh, Jan knew her blood type uh, off the top of her head. I didn't know my blood type. Uh, and, she, and we recognized almost immediately that she was blood type incompatible. So our daughter was an A blood type and Jan was a B blood type. So 
that was like, you know, process of elimination. She couldn't donate. Um, and, and nobody brought up at the time, well, you could donate through Parrot Exchange. Now I know why, because the Parrot Exchange wasn't working real well. Uh, and so I didn't know what blood type I was. And so I immediately uh, jumped in the car and went home and grabbed my um, old Marine Corps records and pulled those out because they got the blood type in there. And, and it was in there. It was a, I was an A blood type. So I was blood type compatible. Uh, so that's, we held onto that for a couple months, you know, we're blood type compatible. Uh, we then had to find a transplant center, right. To be worked up at, we were at a hospital that actually they did transplants, but they didn't do too many. And we recognized the media. Actually, it's an interesting story because the transplants, the hospital that we were at, and this was in 2007, did not offer laparoscopic nephrectomies. Now, you know, Josh, you're in the business. You know that that's like crazy almost, right? Yeah. By 2007, everybody should have been doing them. And I bet you there's centers today that still aren't doing laparoscopic nephrectomies. And they tried to tell us that, oh, you know, the laparoscopic nephrectomy is, is more dangerous. It's like I didn't take a, a lot of research to figure out they were wrong. So we didn't <laughs> want to have anything to do with that center uh, as far as the transplant. So we ended up going to Cornell, a great team at Cornell. Uh, they worked me up. They worked my daughter up. They did the cross match, and I passed the first cross match. I was compatible. And then we scheduled the surgery date. We're moving very fast. Were you nervous at all, or you were like, Gongo, I'm going to save my daughter. This is a no-brainer. Oh, this is a no-brainer. It was a yeah. total no-brainer. Um, so, uh, you know, there was two challenges. One is my blood pressure was high, right, because I'd been sitting in the hospital uh, <laughs> you know, for the last, I don't know, month doing nothing. You know, I was working, sleeping, sitting. The, and so, you know, and, I, you know, the stress of the whole process probably. Yeah. Took whole, so I had to, like, embark on this really rigorous training routine to try to get the blood pressure down because I knew if my blood pressure was too high, I'd get bounced as a donor. And, you know, at work, the blood pressure came down, but I had to, you know, wear one of those 24-hour cuffs a couple times. And I, I finally kind of proved that. I didn't have high blood pressure. <laughs> uh, so that was an obstacle. And then we got right up to the surgery date and I failed the final cross match. So that was uh, catastrophic because, okay, my wife was blood type incompatible. Now I'm antibody incompatible. So both of us are incompatible. What do we do? Right. So she had, she had developed antibodies maybe from a blood transfusion or something like that. So as soon as she got to that hospital, that, that one night, they, they gave her two units of blood. And so... She had kind of a delayed response to the, the blood. So her antibody, her PRA had been ramping up over the last two months. It was, you know, and it had got it about, by the time I did that cross match and failed, uh, her, her PRA was up to 70% somewhere around there. Uh, so she had a, a fair amount of antibodies in her blood at this point. Yeah, she had developed a very potent antibody to my B60 antigen, right? So that's the one that would have been attacked. Uh, so... So I'm out. Now we launched this extensive donor search. Um, and, you know, we, we probably tested a dozen folks uh, different times. And, you know, for a while, everybody was coming up either blood type incompatible or antibody incompatible because my brothers ended up all being antibody incompatible because they had that same B60. And we're into the donor search process a couple months. And uh, my, my nephew uh, came forward and he passed the cross match. Uh, so, you know, of a dozen folks, we had somebody who was compatible. He, um, you know, he stepped up, donated his kidney, um, 
and and we just did uh, what we should talk about Eplet matches because we just did a retrospective Eplet match, and turns out not only was he good, he was a he was a low Eplet mismatch uh, because my brother is a six antigen match to me, and he's the son of my six antigen match brother, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So you can see how the genetics work there. So he, he looked like you know he was. He looked like my daughter's sibling in a way. Um, so uh, anyway, that worked. And, and during that process, we learned about paired exchange. And when we were doing the donor search after I failed the, the, that cross match, that final cross match, and I tried to enter uh, uh, my daughter, myself, in every paired exchange program in the United States. You know, I was on the phone. I was, you know, doing, you know, searches on the Internet. In the end, I think I talked about a, a – probably a dozen paired exchange programs and two were able to accept us. And actually we, we got into those programs, but th- back in those days they were running match runs every three months. Right. Uh, and, and we couldn't get a match. Uh, and it was a frustrating process because I was looking at the mathematics behind paired exchange. And I thought to myself, they should be able to do better. Um, and that was the genesis of, this idea that, you know, creating the National Kidney Registry because the parent exchange programs out there, even though they had done, they had, had a lot of innovations, it wasn't widely available. A lot of them were single center programs. The multi-center programs were, there was a, there were two regional multi-center programs and uh, the user interface wasn't very good. Uh, so, you know, we, I looked at that and I said, you know what, this country needs an industrial strength parent exchange program. I want to tell you about an idea I had to introduce a new trainer to Peloton. Me, Josh Mesrich. Are you sick of riding with people that are both more beautiful and in much better shape than you are? I have a solution for you. Come ride with me, Peloton's newest potential family member. You can pedal with the latest hip hop while Josh gasps his way through the ride, taking multiple breaks to settle his chest pain and catch his breath. Josh's most popular rides are his Tabatas, where he alternates between two seconds of exertion and one second breaks. His second most popular are his hit and vomit rides. Sign up for his live rides, where it will most likely be just you getting a personal training ride from Josh. At least that's what our statistics suggest will happen. Josh has recently been voted the most relatable, worst shape and hairiest trainer in our Peloton family. Join him soon, because he won't be around long. I just, I love, I just, I love this story because I, I think I first heard about Parrot Exchange uh, when I was a surgery resident a little bit after 2000, and it was this cool concept, but it was hard to really get my head around. And then as I got into the transplant world around 2005, we would hear about it all the time, but it, it barely worked. Like we would do one swap in our own program, you know, every six months, some of these regional centers would try and do it, but it was just too logistically challenging. I always thought there was kind of this almost learned helplessness in, in healthcare. So many of us docs have that where you're like, this is a good idea, but it's just going to be too hard to make it work. It was, Josh, it was hard to make it work. Let me tell you, it was Yeah, that's what I want to, like, I just can't, so you're this dad, you know, you're you're lucky, it's it's unlucky that your daughter got kidney disease, but you're lucky that you have this family and you're able to find her a kidney. But what blows my mind is that then you said, I'm going to change this. I, I, you thought you could do it. You thought it was worth doing, I'm sure. Like, 
I think I've heard you say in other interviews, you just wanted to help your daughter in case she needs another kidney. But obviously, it's a lot more than that. I mean, you went all in on this. Well, it was a bigger picture. But one of the driving factors is what if my daughter needs another transplant, right? Right. And maybe it'll be even harder, you know, if she has more antibodies. Right. Uh, but it also was a bigger picture that thousands of people had the same challenges in the United States. And so, you know, if you could solve the problem, it's a big win. But let me take you back to a, an interesting comparison. Back in, I was 2008, 2009, I remember making literally a sales call on a hospital to try to get them to join the National Kidney Registry. And the surgeon said to me, and I remember to this day, he said, I don't know, parent exchange is so much work with so little benefit because only one in 10 patients that enter parent exchange gets transplanted. And back in those days, that was roughly true, only one in 10. Today, Josh, think about this. Today, we get 62% of the patients are transplanted in less than 45 days, right? Yes. And about 99% are transplanted in the first year. And the the 1% that we can't get transplanted, those are people with 100% CPRAs. And so we went from an odds ratio of 1 in 10 to about 99 out of 100 and, and very fast, you know, matching. So it has been a huge transformation over the last, what is it, 13 years. It's completely mind-blowing. I want any of our listeners who aren't in transplant to understand this, because I remember early on, it was such a hassle and it was fun, but it was so logistically challenging. We'd need multiple operating rooms. We were so nervous something would fall apart. We needed tons of people involved. And now we're doing it every day, you know, three times a week, our center's involved in a swap or a chain. And they're literally, we can tell to our patients, like, don't worry about matching. You know, as, as long as you have a donor, we can make this work. You know, it's, it's so mind-blowing how far it's gone. And I think it's mostly been because of you and your organization and, and those of us that have worked with you. <laughs> I mean, I really do think that. Well, yeah, look, you guys are great. All the centers we work with are great. Uh, we got a great team. We got a great medical board. Um, you know, and all this has evolved over time. But one of the things that you can't really do is to say, what one, what one innovation allowed this great progress it is not one innovation. I was going to ask that next. So, <laughs> so it's, you're talking about maybe 500 different innovations over the last 13 years. Now, some of them were huge innovations, you know, like shipping kidneys and, and organizing a national courier and putting GPSs in with the kidneys. And, you know, all, the, all that movement of kidney stuff um, started with this realization that we could ship living donor kidneys. We're shipping living donor kidneys or deceased donor kidneys all the time, but in paired exchange back back in 2007, most of the time the donors were traveling to the recipient center. I know it's amazing. It was it was really UCLA and Jeff Field that pioneered the shipment of kidneys. He was the one that said, "Hey, you ship deceased donor kidneys all the time. Why can't we ship living donor kidneys the same way?" And in the end, he was right. Uh, and now we ship we ship all the kidneys. We don't make the, the donors travel. Um, so shipping kidneys was a big, a living donor kidneys was a big deal. The other big breakthrough would be the voucher program. You know, half of our Good Samaritan donors now donate, over half, donate through the family voucher program. And over one third of the, the paired donors donate through the standard voucher program. So the voucher program 
has really opened things up for us. And I think another one of the other big innovations is our donor shield program where we protect and support the living donors, you know, lost wage reimbursement, travel and lodging reimbursement, life insurance, disability insurance, uh, coverage for uncovered complications, legal support, uh, lost wage reimbursement, travel and lodging reimbursement if you have a complication. Uh, and then life insurance protection from uh, price gouging from the life insurance industry. So that donor shield program, I think, has done a lot to bring more donors forward and do a better job supporting and protecting those donors. Yeah, I mean, I, I just you guys have been so thoughtful about how to make it easier and how to be more supportive of donors. And I just want to highlight again these two concepts where advanced donors say, like, I want to donate to my spouse and we have kids uh, and she's getting the kidney, like I can donate to a chain and then she'll get a voucher. And then in like three months or six months when I recovered, she can then activate and get a kidney back. Or like if I'm a teacher and I need to donate during my vacation and my recipient's not ready, I can just go ahead and do that. So there's no challenge with timing. And then I think the second gigantic thing is if someone out there wants to donate into the pool, but they have this fear, what if my kid needs something down the road or my brother or whatever, you allow these humanitarian or non-directed donors to name five uh, family members that essentially get a, a, a voucher that they can down the road get a kidney if they ever need one. Is that a, a described fairly well? Yeah, or? that's it. The two flavors. One is the family voucher program where Good Samaritan donors donate and they get vouchers for their family members just in case, right? Uh, and the other one is the standard voucher program where you kind of described, you know, you want to donate to your wife, but you're also your wife's caretaker. So it's better for you to donate now and then recover. And a month from now, she activates her voucher and gets matched and transplanted. But let me, this is a good segue into your, your wife is also probably not a very good match to you. And this gets into this whole science of epilet matching, which you guys are heavily involved in in Madison. But, um, you know, the, the typical donor recipient match in a direct donation is not a great match. You know, it's generally a high epilet mismatch, which is, you know, the higher that mismatch, the more likely you are of getting a de novo DSA, the more likely that you'll have a rejection episode, the more likely that you'll lose that kidney. Um, and if you get a low epilet mismatch, uh, you know, less de novo DSA or some would say almost none. Uh, you know, less rejection and the kidneys last a lot longer. And most important, maybe most importantly, is less immunosuppression because it's a better match. You don't need to throw as much immunosuppression at at the recipient. And there's a lot of side effects to that immunosuppression. So the, the lower you can bring that safely down, the better off that patient is for the long term. And so by decoupling the donor-recipient pair, so this goes back to that spouse analogy, um, I would argue that you probably shouldn't donate to your spouse because you're not a good match. You know, the only really good matches are six antigen match siblings. Those are phenomenal matches, but that's only a 3%, 4% of living donor transplants. The rest are generally high epilet mismatches. And through the NKR, we estimate that about 95% of patients can quickly get a low epilet mismatch uh, donor. And so, um, that's the, I think that's the next wave is this recognition that most living donor transplants, probably 80% are high or intermediate epilet mismatches. 
and we can get you a low epilet mismatch, better outcome, lower immunosuppression. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree that what paired exchange has allowed is that no one has to worry about whether they're a match anymore. We can always make that work. And then on top of that, even if they're technically a match, we can get them an even better match. But at the same time, get someone else transplanted, save someone else's life, which is not a small part of that. And I think it's really wonderful. I'm just curious to dive into one other thing, which I'm really fascinated by, which is how far this can all go. Um, I was very moved at an NKR dinner a few years back when a young woman who had donated into a chain and, and multiple people had been saved because of her donation. She got up there and she was maybe very simple. And she made the statement that like a lot of you guys are doctors out there and maybe you get to save people all the time, which of course is not the case. But she was like, I donated a kidney and I saved, you know, 10 people, 12 people. It's the best thing I'll ever do in my life. And I can't tell you how many donors I interact with that are nervous going in, but then a month out will tell me it's one of the best things they've ever done. I'm really curious, like how to, to allow more people to experience this. And I think some of it is celebrating it, writing about it, education. Um, you know, we in Madison have had a lot of people come forward to donate into the group because they think it's a great thing to do. I've thought about a lot of other, th I mean, I think education is the answer, right? Celebrating donors, writing about it. But the other piece is, is things like what you guys have introduced, where you uh, uh, replace lost wages, you help with travel, you protect the donors. I've always, you know, there's a lot of debate out there about whether one could pay a donor. And I think there's a lot of concern about doing that. But I've really become interested in this idea of other ways to celebrate the donor, such as things like health insurance, taking away student loans, grants, for, you know, kind of the, some of the things that you get for joining the military. I know this isn't something the NKR is going to do, but it, what do you think about that? Um, so a couple thoughts. Um, when you started this, you talked about the donor that started a chain and got 10, 12 people transplanted and how that is a hugely significant thing. And so I can speak from personal experience. The chain that I started when I donated got eight people transplanted. I don't talk about it a lot, Josh, but I'll remember that as long as I live. I mean, like that's something to really remember and, and cherish. I mean, it's a big deal. Um, it's huge. It's a huge deal. Yeah. Now, look, most, by the way, just, just to make sure your listeners understand, most chains aren't, aren't long anymore because – we have more Good Samaritan donors coming forward. Uh, but, you know, even one person uh, that gets transplanted uh, is a big, big deal. You know, how, how do you how do you communicate that? I don't know. I think you tell stories. I think, uh, you know, our, our annual event where we have donors speak is a great way to kind of uh, hear more of that. Um, and then and then you kind of went into the thing about what what more can we do for donors and yeah, there's this whole conversation about compensating donors. We don't really go there. Um, and, and for a very practical reason, we still have in the United States a lot of work to do just eliminating the disincentives, lost wage reimbursement, travel and lodging reimbursement. So we've built out this whole donor shield program. Now we have eight different supports and protections. So we think we have the comprehensive answer, so to speak. You know, it's, it's pretty powerful. But it's only uh, right now covering about 25% of the living donors in the United States. It should cover 100%. You know, it's not that expensive. And so I think instead of talking about pie-in-the-sky stuff, we should figure out how to get Donor Shield implemented in every transplant center in the United States so that no donor 
you know, slips through the cracks. Every donor has these this comprehensive protection and support. Yeah, you're so right about that. Gary, let me ask you, do you as someone who maybe took this leap of faith and is, in my opinion, changing the world, and I know you're spending a ton of time on it, like what advice do you give to like people in medicine who want to do something innovative but think I probably can't? I probably won't be able to accomplish this or I don't have the time for it or whatever. Never give up. <laughs> Never <laughs> give up. Listen, there's a few points along the way of the NKR where my wife and I talked about, you know, can we, can we keep going? Uh, and we seriously contemplated, like, we, we can't do this. And, and we didn't give up. And it, and it came, you know, we came through. Um, so, yeah, I would say just, you know, if you've got an idea, if you've got something you believe in, uh, give it a shot, you know, give it a run for its money. And, uh, and a lot of times people don't try. And that's, the, that's where most great ideas fail is they never are even kind of pushed. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree. I, um, I kind of I want to end this. This is a little weird for me, but um, I, I, I was reading The New York Times this weekend and it was kind of interesting that the, po the Pope had an op-ed, which is funny. I, you know, I don't think he contributes a lot of op-eds to The New York Times, but it was a really beautiful piece writing about the pandemic. And he had a few quotes in there that I thought were so relevant to organ donation. I'm not Catholic, but nevertheless, I really, really enjoyed it. And I just want to read a couple of them because I think it's so cool. He was talking about the pandemic, but he, he had a few different quotes. One, he was talking about doctors or others uh, who helped other people. And he said, whether or not they were conscious of it, their choice testified to a belief that it is better to live a shorter life serving others than a longer one resisting that call. That was one comment. But then he ended the article saying, to come out of this crisis better, we have to recover the knowledge that as people, we have a shared destination. The pandemic has reminded us that no one is saved alone. What ties us to one another is what we commonly call solidarity. Solidarity is more than acts of generosity, important as they are. It is the call to embrace the reality that we are bound by bonds of reciprocity. On this solid foundation, we can build a better, different human future. I feel like that transplant is all about this idea that you join someone in their illness and you, you take a leap of faith. Maybe you feel crummy with them, but you do it to try and help bring them out of that illness. And it's this really beautiful thing. And in this crazy polarized world we live in, like transplant is one of these beautiful things. And I just would love more people to be able to feel that and experience that. I don't know. That just hit me, struck me when I was reading that article. So Josh, that the last part of that article, uh, it sounds like he's talking about paired exchange, you know, <laughs> Doesn't it? we're all connected. And in fact, if we all work together in, in paired exchange, right, this is the hospitals working together. This is, you know, the donors and recipients working together. Um, guess what happens? More people's lives are saved and improved, right? Uh, that's overcoming incompatibility. But then we can get these better matches and the outcomes are better, right? So think about that in terms of we're all connected. And if we work together, uh, you know, we'll lift everybody up. And that, that's the story of Paired Exchange. Yeah, so that's the story of our field. And, I, and for anyone out there who's feeling sad or frustrated or disconnected, like, I don't know, if you could experience this incredibly beautiful gift, uh, it is one of the most pure thing. Maybe it's not for everybody. I know it's a bit of a leap of faith to sign up to be a donor. I know not everybody can do it, but it's one of these kind of acts that I think you'll, you'll never forget, right? I mean, I'm sure that's how you'll feel for the rest of your life. 
Absolutely. All right, Gary. Well, it's been so great having you and I'm so thankful for the work you're doing and excited we're working with you and uh, hopefully I'll bring you back in a few years and we'll be at some new milestone. All right, Josh. Thanks for your time today. All right, Gary. Great talking to you. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and Stitcher. Invite your friends to listen in if you have any. And if you're feeling generous, rate us on your favorite podcast app, but only if you're going to give us a good rating. It really does make a huge difference. Thank you so much. The Surgery Set is a production from the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by J.P. Swenson and me, Josh Meserich. Quentin Tarantino did not direct it. It was recorded by Josh Meserich and edited by J.P. Swenson. Visit us at surgery.wisc.edu, where you can find links to Grand Rounds, free CME credits, and more. You can also check out the UW School of Medicine and Public Health video library for a wide range of medical education resources at videos.med.wisc.edu. Give our Facebook page a like and follow us on Twitter at Whisk Surgery. Please feel free to let us know how we're doing. Rate and review us on your podcast app and don't hesitate to let us know any topics you'd like us to cover. Until next time, from all of us here at the set, thank you for listening. You are likely a better person than you were just 30 minutes ago. You are very welcome. <laughs>